Welcome to a Let's Talk Agriculture Farm to Fork special, a three-part series where we examine sustainability in agriculture and the wider food system as it moves to become a carbon net zero industry. In this podcast, Mark Southern, National Head of Agriculture at Barclays, explores this important topic with Neil Parrish MP, Chair of the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Select Committee. Mr Parrish has been a Conservative MP since 2010, and before that was an MEP for 10 years. Throughout his political career, he's been heavily involved in agriculture policy, spending the last decade on the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Select Committee, and being elected its Chairman in 2015. Mark, over to you. My name's Mark Southern and I'm delighted that you've joined me to listen to this Let's Talk Agricultural Special on Farm to Fork. It's the second episode in this series that's part of our Sustainability Through Agritech campaign to help farmers become net zero with a £250 million worth of support available. I'm the National Head of Agriculture at Barclays and we're exploring sustainability because it has rapidly risen to prominence over the past few years, particularly as the government seeks to put a green recovery at the heart of its post-COVID-19 economic plan and the National Farmers Union aims to achieve carbon net zero for agriculture by 2040. So today I'll be chatting to Neil Parrish MP, Chair of the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Select Committee. Mr Parrish has been the Conservative MP for Tiverton and Honiton since 2010 and prior to that spent 10 years as an MEP for the South West England. Throughout his career in politics he has been passionately involved in agricultural issues and is well suited to his role having come from a farming background in Somerset. Mr Parrish thank you very much for joining us. After such a challenging year so far I should simply start by saying how are you? I think I'm well. Um, I think it is very frustrating for all of us because coronavirus, we were hoping that we would have had it under control by now. And I think it's just making sure that we keep going, we keep the country fed um, and we keep people's morale up and, and minimise the spread of the disease as much as we can, really. Yeah, and I think that piece about keeping morale up is 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 absolutely critical. But if I can, I'd like to sort of go back to where it all began. Uh, you're from farming stock down in Somerset, and uh, I, I believe you left school at 16 to, to manage the farm. So what, what tempted you away from the farmer's life and into politics? Well, I suppose I when I left school, I, I enjoyed my farming. I went into young farmers. Um, I did quite a lot of debating and brain stress. So I got a sort of a taste for, for putting my point of view over. My grandfather was also um, a local councillor. He was an independent in those days on the district council. And so it was partly in the blood. And so I, I went on to the parish council when I was about sort of 19 or 20. And then district council when I was 26 seven and county when I was 31 and and then sort of decided after a little while that uh, you know perhaps uh, politics was something that I was reasonably good at and that I ought to put my point of view over for the for farming for environment for all of these things and so um, I stood for Parliament in, in, in South Wales in, in, in 97 in a very safe Labour seat uh, Pontypool and Cumbran and, and lost by 24 and a half thousand votes so that was my start and then I went on then to the European Parliament enjoyed that very much left that in, after 10 years and came on to Westminster uh, and uh, where I sat on the Environment, Food, Rural Affairs Select Committee for uh, five years and then 
chaired it from 15 and to present day really and uh, I really I really enjoy sticking to to that particular agenda really yeah, well, my my own career in politics peaked as a chairman of a parish council, so uh, I I do uh, I do admire your fortitude. So your uh, your your career in politics has has been defined by that passion and work in agriculture, both both in Europe in the European Parliament and as a, as an MP. Uh, and you know, you mentioned being you know the chair of the Select Committee for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. So. Do you think that's that is that root cause that's driven you into politics in the first place? That real desire to make that difference for the farming community? It has, and I think I've also sort of looked at the you know to try and help the farming community. I've also realised very much that the food that we eat is so important, the provenance of it, um, and the way it's being produced, and so the food, and then it's linked to the environment and how we produce it, and so really. I suppose I've sort of my interest has grown as the world has sort of moved on. I mean, when I was elected to the European Parliament in 1999, I was talking about local food and all of these things, and I was seen as you know slightly eccentric to say the least at that time. Uh, but you know now we really are considering where, how. Uh, and and really want to know about good food, link it back to our landscape, our countryside, our farming, um, and it, it works well, really. And so, you know, it, it, all the time we've got to keep the pressure on to make sure that the you know, the rhetoric that comes from government is actually delivered. And that's what, a, you know, that's what a select committee does, really. It scrutinises, and I enjoy that part of my job. Mm. Do you think that sort of first-hand experience, whether it you know goes back to the farm and young farmers, that first-hand experience and knowledge, do you think that is really helping you as a public servant get those messages about provenance and quality assurance across? Yes, and it's not only about the provenance and quality assurance. It's about, you know, if you're setting up a new scheme to support farmers in the environment, uh, I really want to make sure it works practically on the ground. And it's not just, a, you know, well, we've ticked that box. It looks very good, sounds very good, but it's only good if it actually works on the ground. And so there are times when I can say to ministers, I can say to civil servants, well, you know, good idea but it just won't work like that if you did it in a slightly different way you'd find that the farmers would deliver it they would buy into it um, if you go in that direction it's just almost impossible to deliver it may look fine on paper but doesn't work well in practice and i think that's where you know the local your you know down to earth practical experience getting your hands dirty doing these jobs that is what makes a difference yeah, and and I think that that difference starts to sort of really come forward in in trying to make sure we we create those sort of vibrant and maintain those vibrant rural economies. And you know, for, for me personally, as a banker, I'm also chair of Farm Community Network, and it's it's about making sure that we understand the sort of the needs and wants of those those um, communities to make sure that we help help the economy. But I know your committee's undertaken several inquiries on the impact of COVID-19 on, on the food supply and uh, especially on the dairy sector. You know, what do you think has been the main challenges in supporting the sector through this sort of 
unusual year of turbulence. Well, I suppose the big challenge was when the government, for very good reasons, had to sort of shut everybody down and, and lock down. And so, you know, you people were not going to restaurants, they were not going out to buy food. And so therefore, all the food uh, had to then go through the retailers and actually give the retailers and the processes their due. You know, they did a good job in tough circumstances. But, you know, it was the dairy farmers that were supplying in you know, fresh ways into cafes and things that were selling a lot of milk all of a sudden weren't uh, and that's where for about a month there was a real problem now the spring became drier the milk production didn't peak quite as high as we thought it would and so therefore we then redirected the the milk to the retail sector uh, and we got through it um, the eggs were, were, were short for a while because you know processed egg liquid and powder was not getting into the country and so a lot of shell eggs were being used for processing that weren't normally used so there were stresses and strains uh, but we came through we also managed to get sort of food out to the poorest in society that was another real issue because um, people weren't giving as much you know weren't going to the supermarkets as much people were buying online um, so there was a whole combination defra gave money the government gave money we need to sort of probably do more of that in the future so like i said it it, it was interesting but what I think I pay credit to is, is both the farmers and the processors and the retailers for actually keeping the system and the market going and keeping the supplies going, even though there were stresses and strains uh, in the middle of it. And certainly for me as a, as a banker, talking to our uh, clients, it was that sense of collaboration and, uh, you know, as you, as you describe. But there are a number of, of challenges that farmers have faced during the pandemic, but some of them have not sort of disappeared. So what are your sort of main concerns for the sort of months and years to come when looking at the sort of the agricultural sector and its, its real primary needs? Yeah, I mean, I suppose we can't ignore the fact of what sort of deal are we going to get at the end of the year when we finally, you know, leave the European Union because uh, much of our market um, is, go, you know, about 60% of our food uh, comes and goes into the European Union. So, you know, we need to get that right. And so tariffs um, and restrictions on movement of produce, especially uh, perishable produce, uh, is going to be a big issue. And so that needs to be got right. If we get through that, then I think we have a very good home market. I think we can develop other trade deals provided we, you know, we manage them in a way where we recognize that we have high standards and we import good standard product uh, into the country. Then I think we can take these challenges. But I have to say that there will be, you know, there will be more competition uh, for food. Um, and so they'll, you know, we'll probably talk a bit about in the environment as well in the minute. We will need to, you know, reduce, produce more food um, on less land um, using less fertilizer, pesticide and fungicide. And so, you know, it's all going to be a great challenge. But I think farmers are adaptable um, and I think they can deliver. It's whether, you know, government can support them in the right way will be the challenge. The government has talked recently about the need for a green recovery from the pandemic. Is this something that you and the committee see as a sort of a, a real priority for agriculture? And you know, do you think this moment could be a sort of a line in the sand for farms, a sort of before COVID and after COVID watershed? 
Yes, if we get it right, it will work. If we get the balance between improving our environment, uh, reducing our inputs, reducing antibiotics in, in, you know, in meat production, all of these things and produce a quality product. And then, like I said, don't don't flood the market with cheap imports of lower standard food. I think we can come through this very well. I think we can also look at more minimal cultivations. We can keep more carbon in the soil. We can keep more permanent pasture. We can do all of these things. We can have more grass fed beef and milk and lamb. All of these things could be done. Our poultry and pig sectors are very, are very productive and very efficient. We can reduce the amount of carbon, the amount of emissions coming. We will probably have to look at the methane gas coming from livestock. We can change some of the, of the, um, the New Zealanders have done quite a lot of work on producing different grasses, different lays, different crops to try and actually reduce the methane uh, coming from an animal while they are uh, ruminating. So, you know, there is a lot we can do and, and I think we're up to the challenge. But what I don't want to happen is that we go to such extremes that we dramatically reduce our production, um, import that extra food. And in the end, if you're going to go for cheap food, a lot of that will come from Malaysia and from Brazil, where, you know, they are destroying rainforests. So, you know, as we as we improve our environment, as we produce more environmentally friendly food, as we manage our soils better, all good stuff, but we mustn't reduce production dramatically. In fact, I would like to see it increase if possible. And then there's genotechnology, all of these new technologies. We must not we must not close our minds to this because otherwise we won't produce the healthy, environmentally friendly food that we need. There's certainly a real desire from the sector and from those around the sector to improve that efficiency of the UK, but also a number of conversations I've had in just in the last month about how carbon becomes an income stream as well to support uh, UK farmers. And so in September this year, we did run some research and we interviewed uh, a thousand farmers across the UK and Northern Ireland about their current attitudes towards this sort of sustainability. Two thirds said that sustainability and business efficiency are, are their top priorities. And the same amount indicated that they're thinking about how to make their operations more sustainable, specifically in the wake of, of the pandemic. And, you know, that's what you were sort of alluding to. And, and this is something we're keen to encourage, as you've already articulated. But what support do you think government can provide to farmers who want to become more sustainable and more efficient? Yeah, I mean, it's a new, you know, environmental land management system schemes, which will really be key to this because you take tree planting, very good for, especially as the trees grow, very good for holding um, and, and taking um, carbon out of the atmosphere and producing oxygen. So very good. But it's not just what we mustn't do is just plant trees, you know, just for the sake of planting trees, however laudable it may be, because we can also help stop soil erosion. We can also stop flooding in places uh, and how we plant. You see, we no longer must plow. We used to traditionally we used to plow a sort of furrow and plant the tree on top of the furrow. Of course, what you then created was a very wonderful drainage channel, but the only trouble was the water ran off even faster if you weren't careful. And so, you know, all of these practical things as we as we move forward. And then, like I said, we won't, we will reduce um, uh, more, have more minimal cultivations. We, 
will, we will put less carbon um, uh, out of, into the atmosphere. But again, we are going to need things like glyphosate um, in order to have minimal cultivation. So, you know, there is a real challenge for us because on the one hand, we need to reduce chemical inputs. Um, on the other hand, we have got to have more minimal cultivations. They, they don't always fit neatly together. So this will be the challenge. I think the elm schemes, if we get them right, we can enhance hedgerows, we can enhance the strip around the fields, we can we can grow more bee-friendly crops. You know, there's, there's awful lots of things that we can do on the edges that will make life better for the environment, better for pollination, um, and better for food production and I think people will be you know I think people will be happy um, to uh, support farming if they are supporting the environment the the one challenge will be is that they will accept a little bit of an increase in in food prices but they won't necessarily want food prices uh, to go through the roof no and, and I think that that, that that acceptance will be will be absolutely key um, we both know that the sort of the National Farmers Union have set that target for all farms in the UK being sort of carbon net zero within the next sort of 20 years. And just to put that into context, that same research that we did of the thousand farmers found that a sixth of the farmers believe that they already are, which is I think is really encouraging. And, and as many as half of the farmers expect to be carbon net zero by 2025. So how do you think the government can really help achieve this? and get the whole sector that to that point by 2040. Well, I suppose it will be very much, you know, linking our new schemes to practical methods of probably encouraging more permanent pasture, um, like I said, encouraging more minimal cultivations, uh, probably looking at new techniques of growing crops. Um, and even when it comes not just to carbon, but to air quality, we probably have to look, dare I say it, at the tractors that we are driving and using um, to till our land. Um, I don't, I'm not sure that some of my tractors on, on our farm, pretty ancient as they are, would meet any particular admissions at the moment. And so, you know, all of these things are, are key to it, really. And I think in the end, I think it was Manat Batters who said, you know, in order to go green, you need to be in the black. Uh, you need to make money, and I, I don't need to tell that to a bank manager, do I? Uh, to a banker, um, having having had sort of interesting conversations with my bankers over the years. Um, but you know that is key. We've got to make sure um, there is some money to be made um, in the nicest possible way, but then that can be ploughed back literally in, into making farming more green, more sustainable. And I think that's a challenge for the government. Um, for us all to make sure that we target support at the environment, um, but at the same time, and I keep repeating this, um, maintaining a reasonable level of food production because it is no good us becoming hugely green, uh, but, but, but producing very little food. And then, then, like I said, we will import the water and, and the carbon and all of these things that are used to grow the food from other parts of the world. So, you know, you will not do the global environment good. So we need to do both, really. Yeah, and, and that piece about looking after our planet and that sort of safeguarding that sort of environment for future generations, it's so important. And, and two-thirds of the farmers we spoke to in the research felt that the, there is an unfair perception that farmers are a contributor to this sort of the climate emergency and you sort of touched upon that would you agree or, or do you think farmers could be doing more to reduce their sort of their own environmental footprint 
I mean, I think we can do more. We can always do more. Um, and I think if we do it in a sensible way, I think we can reduce our footprint um, and still maintain reasonable production. I think um, the methane gas cycle as well, you know, that needs to be looked at as well because it is a sort of 10-year cycle. Um, methane gas is a problem, but, you know, ruminants are such a marvellous animal because they take a, you know, they take grass, they take fodder that we would not be able to digest ourselves as humans and they produce it into high quality meat so you know we have an issue and like I said I think again not we need to maintain reasonable livestock levels and just look at ways that we can reduce the methane gas we can do all sorts of things um, if we are innovative um, and like I said the New Zealanders lead way on some of this work because the New Zealanders um, are becoming sort of very green and their population is is very green and so they are actually driving their farmers in a much more green direction now I tease the New Zealanders and say well I'm very happy about that because that will also drive up your costs um, and also make you you know less less cheap meat coming into Britain so uh, but you know I think it's it's onerous you know the onus on all of us to do a good job in this country but also like I said and I do keep repeating this make Making sure that we, as we do these trade deals, we're sure that the people we're trading with are producing in a very similar, not exactly the same way, we can't demand that, but a very similar way uh, as we are to improve the environment. Yeah, it's interesting what you should say about New Zealand and uh, talking to sort of bankers in New Zealand where we would want to talk about, you know, sort of audited accounts and the financials and also the plans for the farm. You know, one of the things that New Zealand bankers would would expect to see from a farm farm business is their environmental audit. And it just goes to show how deeply ingrained that is now becoming in the way that they view agriculture. And, and what you described there just really sort of reinforces to me that the fact that this work isn't just simply cosmetic, you know, People do want farms to do more. They seem to be taking a real interest in the provenance of their food, the techniques deployed, and that whole journey from sort of farm to fork. And um, I think this actually represents a, a massive opportunity for farmers because becoming sustainable will help bring consumers on board. So any investment at the moment should be really worthwhile. Would, would, you, would you agree? Yes, and I think you know there is um, there are many farmers out there are are linking much more into the market. They are actually you know adding value by actually taking their raw material, be it milk, uh, be it meat, um, be it vegetables, and sort of doing some processing and actually selling and actually delivering it and selling it very often directly to the public and that is also a really good way of, of, of getting a good income and I think those big commercial producers growers um, again they will need to you know improve where how they farm and how they produce but the retailers um, are also going to have to recognize that there will be some extra costs and they need to recognize that in the price that they pay. So, you know, to coin a phrase, we are all in it together. Um, and my job, in a way, is to say to retailers and others, you want this, we want to produce it. There may be some cost implications. Uh, I think the market needs to absorb some of the costs of going green. Um, it's not all going to come from public money and of course the more 
public money farming takes, the more farmers are in hock to the politicians. And, um, you know, I'm both a farmer and a politician, and so I can see the dangers of this. <laughs> yes. The piece about becoming sustainable, and you talk about it there, it, it, for me, it doesn't have to mean becoming less profitable. You know, you, you talk about sort of that balancing that equation, but it could likely mean that there'll, there'll be an increased sort of short-term investment for that longer-term benefit, and that's both financially and environmentally, which will lead to, you know, I believe, more sustainable businesses. So when, when you're out speaking to farmers, what, what are they saying they're most likely to be investing in it right now? Is it agri-tech? What sort of tech is it? Yeah, I think the arable sector is is going is really interested in agri tech. They already a lot of them, you know, have the satellites. They know which parts of the field to, they need the fertilizer and which don't. Um, and so they have they technology. I think in the large arable farms it is pretty good and it's improving. I think some of our livestock farms, especially the smaller ones, probably struggle sometimes to get the very latest equipment and so on. And that's where you know there are some grant schemes now for handling systems and all this type of thing so you know there's lots of practicalities you know covering slurry stores and making sure that we're not polluting the streams fencing off streams so that cattle and sheep don't run in the streams and pollute them um, all of that sort of thing is where I think support needs to go and then I think farmers will put the investment in you as bankers will want to see you know you will want to see a long-term future for that business won't you because very often if you're borrowing money you need to be able to sort of prove to the that you are going to have a cash flow and i think again i emphasize um when we've done all this um the farm needs to be profitable and uh, then you as a bank are prepared to lend the money the farmer hopefully can make a living for his or her family uh, and the public can get good environmentally sustainable food but the whole thing does have to fit together you know you, you talked about the arable sector and you talked about livestock and i think you know one of the sectors where i've seen the use of sort of new technology is in the, the use of robotics in in the dairy sector and i think particularly there it, it's not just the economic uh, effect it has it's it's also for farming families is the social benefit of allowing them to have a very different operating model uh, which i think brings a another massive benefit but thinking about that longer term what what are your hopes as a farmer as a politician for the agricultural sector over the next few years how optimistic are you for the future? I think if we can get the um, you know encouragement, uh, get the support payments in the right place, if we can actually maintain a reasonably good price for, for what we produce, um, then I think we can move into a much more sustainable, environmentally friendly ways of production. What you don't want is a huge um, pressure on prices because immediately farmers have to you know have to then concentrate on production uh, they have to reduce their costs and sometimes they they will not be able to do the environmental uh, work that they need to do so that's going to be the big challenge and i think we're also aren't we looking at ways that we can maintain a reasonable level of prices and and and, and sustain that the you know hopefully the the peaks are okay it's the troughs that are the problem and so i think that's the other issue because again you know if we're going to want good food good farming good countryside uh we need a a good profitable farming industry and like i said i repeat myself but um, i'm sure that's where you barclays uh, would like the farmers to be
you're absolutely right. It, it's a sector that we are passionate about. It's a sector that we want to support. And it's a sector that we want to help make sure we can iron out that volatility. You know, we recognise that there will be those peaks and troughs. Uh, but, um, you know, farmers have been farming for, for many generations. This is a unique sector in that part of that intergenerational um, sort of farming family. And uh, for us, it's absolutely key that we continue to, to support and invest in the sector. So, so Mr. Parrish, to, to finish, I've got two final questions for you. So, firstly, if you were going to give one piece of advice for consumers looking to do their best in helping the food system become carbon net zero from farm to fork, what, what would that be? What would you be saying to the consumer? I suppose basically buy as local as possible, um, check exactly where your food's coming from um, and also it will be up to then to the farmers to produce that food in the way that is environmentally friendly and I think link the two together also our you know bigger retailers all of those they need to be you know they like to buy British they like to buy local I mean you don't want one or two of the big retailers you know only have one or two processing and slaughter houses in the whole country that needs to be much more local there's an environment there's animal welfare issues as well to be to be dealt with um, and so all of these things I think need to fit together so get that right then I think you know we will have a bright future yeah there's a real opportunity to to, to help the uh, the consumer uh, make the right decisions but you, you sort of touched upon it but what would be one sort of piece of specific advice for a farmer looking to do their bit to help the food system I suppose the biggest one is to make sure you have your market. Uh, so, you know, are you going to do, are you going to have a direct contract uh, with a big retailer? Uh, are you going to go out and sell to the public? Are you absolutely certain you have, you know, a market for what you produce at a, a decent price. Um, it, it sounds utopia, it's not so easy to deliver, but that has got to be the key message because then um, with government support and with um, economic support um, and good management, we can deliver the type of farming, the type of food, the type of environment that we want for the future. Yeah, and, it's, and it is that piece about collaboration to get that sort of... Uh, aspiration that I think we all we all crave so Mr Parrish thank you thank you so very much um, it's been really interesting really insightful and and really good luck with everything you do and, and, and let's keep in touch right well I look forward to seeing you again and uh, I'll try and be polite about bankers when I next see you and um, <laughs> and uh, it's always good to tease the bankers um, but we need you uh, and we need banks to invest so and farming you know needs to be be a sound proposition so um, I look forward to, to talking to you again yeah thanks ever so much take care us next time for part three of our Let's Talk Agriculture Farm to Fork special to hear from another guest on how the industry is making progress on becoming carbon net zero. If you're interested in finding out how Barclays can help support you in becoming carbon net zero, then simply search Barclays Agriculture Sustainability or speak to one of our agriculture managers. For those new to Barclays, call us on 0800 515 462. Lines are open Monday to Friday, 8am to 7pm. We also have our Let's Talk Agriculture podcast series too, where Oliver McIntyre discusses the latest trends in the market and interviews guests on other important issues facing the sector.
Make money work for you. Call charges may apply. Please check with your service provider for details. We're not responsible for, nor do we endorse in any way, third-party websites or their content. The views and opinions expressed in this content don't necessarily reflect the views of Barclays Bank UK PLC, nor should they be taken as statements of policy or intent of Barclays Bank UK PLC. Barclays Bank UK PLC takes no responsibility for the veracity of information intimated by a third party and no warranties or undertakings of any kind, whether expressed or implied, regarding the accuracy or completeness of the information given. Barclays Bank UK PLC takes no liability for the impact of any decisions made based on information contained and views expressed in this presentation or article. Barclays Bank UK PLC, authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority.